Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where we share stories and tips to help you run a better farming business and create your very own freedom farm. If you're looking to work smarter and not harder in your farm business, welcome, you're in the right place. G'day and welcome again to Profitable Farmer. I hope the season is finding you well. Um, there are times where I feel like it's it's ideal to bring in the Brains Trust. And so I am in this podcast calling on two very clever gentlemen who can offer us some really useful insights, um, given the, the agri-economic climate that perhaps we find ourselves in. Um, reflecting on this, you know, we've entered into a period where we're experiencing inflation um, broadly, increasing interest rates and potentially softening commodity prices. And I think that has a lot of us on the back of a couple of very good seasons, asking ourselves some questions around the strength of our business model, um, whether we've got our cost base right for what's coming. Um, And I think they're really good questions to be asking. And so I wanted to explore exactly that topic. And I've invited uh, FOA director and founder, Greg Johnson, to join us. And also, you might remember Jeff McDonald, executive director of RLS Lending and Agribusiness, um, who I interviewed both on episode 98 and episode 85 of this podcast. So on the back of this, you'd do well to go and listen to those two podcasts. Um, Greg and Jeff, welcome to you both. Greg, first, if I could, what's your sentiment on... um, what we're seeing compared to how life was for us perhaps 24 months ago. G'day, Jeremy, and, and, and good everybody. It's nice to be with you today. Um, yeah, well, things have changed quite a bit. Um, 20, 24 months, 18 to 24 months ago, um, we were going through what I would consider to be a rural price boom um, uh, in all aspects, basically. We had uh, we had the perfect storm, I think. We had, um, we had uh, you know, massive demand for land on the back of, uh, very high commodity prices across pretty well all commodities. We had um, you know good seasons generally across the country after the the, the eighteen and nineteen droughts. Um, we had um, you know massive demand for land, so you know really um, rapid accumulation of wealth on the balance sheet of most people who own farming land. So um, like it was just a, it was an unbelievable in the forty years of time that I've been involved with farming and the agriculture industries. Um, I've never seen a, a period like it where we've had the juxtaposition of all of those favourable things coming together. Um, and and it was never going to last. It was always going to be a temporary scenario. Um, and um, and those people with that had good business models and had good um, cost of production and so forth were able to really capitalise on those years and and um, you know and make very high profits um, profits like like I've never seen pretty well in in forty years of benchmarking farm businesses. Uh, quite quite incredible, really. So um, and things have changed a bit now. We're, we're, we've moved back to what is more uh, a more long term scenario economically in terms of the commodity prices most of the commodities have now moved back towards their long-term averages um and which which is what commodity prices do um and um and we've got a situation where interest rates are now much they've moved back towards you know what um towards what the long-term average interest rates have been over the last 20 to 30 years so so you know we've just basically the needle has corrected back from what was an extremely favorable position in in all those aspects to a, a more realistic position i think Jeff, what's your take on on where we find ourselves now compared to a couple of years ago? Yeah, thanks for having me too, Hutch. Um, Yeah, exactly like Greg said, certainly, and, you know, there's there's pockets that vary, but the last two to three years have been um, pretty good, you know, certainly with rainfall and and, um, commodity prices, everything else. And obviously we've had a, um, you know, we had high input costs last year as well, but they were easily absorbed by most, with the um, returns um, so yeah and and you know whilst not doom and gloom we're probably settling down the the interest rates are an interesting one where um, I got asked at a, a conference a month ago um, you know when are they coming back or, or there was a comment along those lines and my answer was well we're probably not even we're still under you know 20 year averages on interest rates and um, and you know for our economy to work well floating around where we are now is is uh, sometimes a nice fit where they're affordable. They're not in the teens, 
and um, you know there's a return on investor money as well. So um, so probably you know putting all that together and heading forward, um, you know we've come off a good platform to go forward. But you know sort of understanding the numbers is a key now um, on what are new averages. Greg touched on you know working on long term averages and your numbers is always a safe way to go. Banks certainly do that, and um, yeah, it, it provides the strength to the business. Jeff, I wouldn't mind extending that if I could. When we have a couple of really strong years and those windfall profits that Greg mentioned, what are some mistakes we can make? I think often as humans we have short-term memory and so we can think that this is our new reality, you know, when we're in those moments. What are some mistakes that people can make on the back of a couple of good positive years? Yeah, look, um, back, back a few years ago I used to read a, um, one of the banks used to put out what they called, uh, you know, business confidence and ag confidence. And I used to try and get my head around that word confidence. And and I've seen it <laughs> firsthand in the last 12 months, 18 months. Um, you know, when a farmer's, you know, had a, had he understands a, a bad year and suddenly has a good year, it, um, you know, it gets a bit confident and, you know, orders machinery and, and uh, yeah, it gets a bit braver. And obviously the other psychology is every every year when they put their assets and liabilities together and they put their land down at the new the new average as it's been going through the roof you know they feel wealthy they uh they're looking at a much stronger asset position than they used to have so the mistake sometimes off the back of that is to act off a feel and and not the numbers um you know the feeling of confidence and the feeling of wealth um, because you know there's a danger of overcooking it, and you know it could be that um, you know new machinery or extra land or whatever. Um, off the back of all that, the equity is good. You know, there's still a lot of farmers out there that make decisions off the back of equity. You know, they figure on a land to debt ratio. If they're sitting under fifty percent, they're feeling pretty safe. But now that we've you know a lot of areas the land value's doubled, that's a significant amount of debt um, that you know at now higher rates. And remember, banks have to calculate the ability to repay it on a principal and interest basis, even if they're interest only, they still have to calculate that. And, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, there, there can be some pressure put on that. So, you know, it really gets down to understanding your numbers as a business, as a trading operation. Um, you know, when you talk about budgeting, um, benchmarking, you know, put in your averages on everything and see how they stack up. That's the key message that there's still quite a few out there that aren't doing that. And um, and they, they sometimes even get surprised when they find it hard to get finance. Jeff, just to extend on that, um, what are you seeing um, in terms of the bank's sentiment towards lending? And have you seen people sort of take on a lot more debt as a function of increased land values and you know put themselves in in a real pre- position of pressure? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Sometimes off the back of being confident, um, you know, I, I don't want to talk too much about the wine grape industry, but you know, that's uh, the commodity price there is probably thirty year lows, and uh, and banks have been quite reasonable on their assessment to to look at it from a you know again a long term average, um, and and again the you know um, a vast majority of growers don't know their numbers. They know they're losing money now and they're potentially running on a bit of hope. And when the bank sits down and crunches out their numbers, you know, there's a few that are getting exposed where even at average prices, they're, they're very tight. Um, and this is, you know, I've mentioned it before, uh, APRA laws, you know, in the last three or four years, we've got these responsible lending laws where it's uh, deemed irresponsible for a bank to lend to someone if they can't demonstrate they can repay the debt. Because regardless of equity, and you know we've had we've got cases where you know even at twenty percent loan to valuation ratio, people are struggling to show servicing. So um, if a bank were to lend just on equity, then they're effectively saying that they're going to get their money back by selling them up, and that's deemed irresponsible. So that's the message that both banks and us and we're trying to get out there that you know we've got to understand the numbers the the, the farmers got to understand the numbers and and some of them are getting a rude shot because they really don't know until they go to the bank and get declined thanks jeff so greg you mentioned needing to know our numbers and i know a big focus that we have with our members is cost of production what are some of the key um tools and systems that we need to get around ourselves so that we are on top of our numbers and, and analysing our viability strongly? 
I think the first thing, uh, Jeremy, is to be able to understand what what it is that your production model can deliver. So, what whatever your whatever enterprise you're running or enterprises that you're running, you need to be able to model that economically um, and and from a production sense, so that you can understand what the potential uh, income generation from those enterprises are, and then what the costs associated with that income generation are. And and the best way to do that is by creating an economic model. Um, which is not hard to do, really. It's it's like it can be done easily in, in Excel. It's not not a difficult process to go through. Um, and and once you've got that model together that fits your farm and your and your enterprise mix, then you can tweak the various um, inputs and, and and outputs to to look at what the the results might be. So I mean, the key really is to is to become um, as much as possible a, low, a lower cost producer. Now, what does that mean? Um, I'm not talking about um, a, a low cost producer is a low cost of production producer. I'm not talking about um, spending no money. Uh, in, in, in other words, minimising costs. Because what often happens is that if you start cutting back on costs that have a direct relationship to productivity, as you decrease the cost, you decrease productivity, and there's a very, very strong relationship in farming between productivity and revenue, and revenue and profit. So as you start to decrease, if you decrease costs that have a direct relationship to decreasing productivity, then your, re- your revenue goes down, and then your um, your profit generally goes down. So your cost of production actually goes up. So what we find in the majority of benchmarking um, scenarios is that is that the low cost producers generally tend to spend more per hectare, but they have much higher productivity and they have much higher revenue generation. So understanding these, these numbers and how they all fit together and how you can tweak your business model to be able to deliver more revenue um, at, at a similar cost base or a slightly higher cost base is the key. And particularly in the grazing um, enterprises across the country, um, there's generally lots of opportunity to improve um, product, production and revenue. Um, a lot of people run extremely conservative um, production models uh, on the um, on the product on the in the grazing enterprise side. Um, a little bit not quite the same on, on cropping. Um, a lot of croppers run pretty technically advanced um, enterprises, and so they're pretty well on top of what they're doing there. But there are opportunities um, in the cropping space as well to capture. More from um, from the seasons that are delivered to you. I know, for example, in the last couple of years, there's been significant um, uh, significantly lower production in some areas based on the rainfall that they've achieved because um, people just haven't gone out and capitalised on on the rainfall um, by looking at in crop nutrition and so forth and understanding what's going on with nitrogen and response to nitrogen, even though nitrogen has been expensive. Um, uh, potentially, the the, um, the the extra gain, extra yield that could be gained. Um, by understanding what's going on um, on your property, um, you know, far outweighs the, the extra cost of the nitrogen input. So, so I think you know, there's, there's there are lots of opportunities for people to think about what they're doing um, and to and to utilise the the rainfall they receive um, and and tweak the model that they've got to to generate um, higher revenue and become a lower cost uh, cost production producer. Thanks, Greg. What's that economic model look like? Is it a a twelve month month by month sort of budget or is it a, a longer term projection than that? Can you just give us a visual on what you would suggest is a really robust economic model? Yeah, well, I think it starts it starts with an annual model. So, so don't, don't even think about, don't even worry about doing a 12-month cash flow budget on a model that's, that's broken. If the, if the model can't deliver profit, don't even don't spend the time doing a 12-month cash flow budget because doesn't matter how you can budget the hell out of it, and you're still not going to make any money because the model can't deliver the profit. So to start with the annual, you know, what is what does the annual outcome look like? You know, so you know, it, like what's your yield going to be? What's the prices that you're going to you're going to budget on? Um, what do the costs look like? Doesn't make a profit. And if and once you can start um, generating or looking at a model for your farm that actually generates a profit, then you can go back and work your twelve month cash flow scenario out to look at what your cash shortfalls and, and, and surpluses are going to be. For a cropping situation, I mean, generally you could look at one year, but probably you want to look at a budget that extends over the rotation length um, because really in the end it's the profitability over the rotation cycle that's the important part, not just one year. So so I think, you know, looking at the, at the profitability of the rotation is the important part there. For, um, for, for grazing enterprises, it probably needs to be at least three years because a lot of the decisions you make this year will have a may have ramifications over the next two to three years. So you know you might make some decisions that actually make today's cash flow or this year's cash flow look better and this year's profitability look better, but you'll have ramifications potentially in year two and year three that actually make the three-year average profitability lower. So you need to extend that out over 
enough time to allow those decisions, those critical decisions to play out. And I think we, some of us may have got into the trap of using above average yields and above average prices in our budgeting in recent years. Greg, what should be the assumptions that underline that economic model? Do we need to be going back to looking at long-term average prices and long-term average yields and, and rates um, in that assessment and making sure our business models can be profitable based on long-term average? Look, ideally, um, your business model, for whatever enterprises you're running, your business model should be able to deliver 30% net profit ratio. So that's 30% of your revenue retained as profit after all costs uh, have been allocated, including a plant ownership cost or depreciation cost on all plant machinery and commercial rate of um, uh, applied to the labour being supplied by the owner, so commercial rate. 30% uh, revenue uh, should be retained as profit in an average production year or average yield expectancies, whether irrespective of what the commodity is, and average prices. Because that's going to be the results that you get um, out of your enterprises based on an average year, um, production year and average prices will be the likely long-term average for your farm over a 10 to 15 year period. And so if, if you make, if, if on average prices and average yields, you're making no profit, then your average return over the 10 or 15 year horizon is gonna be zero, your average profit. Um, and that's not where the business needs to be. The business needs to sit in a situation where it can produce, ideally produce, you know, a prof, it's, it's profitable, um, at, a, at a good level with average prices and average yields. And so it's not until you get into those lo you know, those lowest 20% of yields or 20% of prices where you might start breaking even. And, Greg, just to clarify, that is profit after debt servicing and owners' drawings and no, all so, No, that's before debt servicing. So, so, it's, so the costs are involved are the direct cost and the overhead cost, including a commercial rate of remuneration for the owner's labour. Um, and and plant ownership, so to pull depreciation on the plant on the plant and machinery that's in the business, but it's before financing costs. Okay, great, thank you, Jeff. How does the bank do it? How does the bank um, model our businesses when they partner with us um, through lending? Um, is it different to what Greg, uh, Jeff, what Greg just described? Uh, no, it's, it's exactly the same principle, and and I'll just give you the data because it's actually, if I explain it well, it's not that hard to understand. Um, gross income expenses before debt servicing. Um, so, so basically what, what the banks do from an historical point of view is they grab the profit and loss, they take out interest and they take out depreciation. And so the net profit, whatever it is, uh, gets added up, grossed up, and then they do their calculations on tax debt servicing and living expenses. Um, so if, as Greg said, what we advocate for is pay commercial wages and then they look after the living expenses. If someone's trading in a trust or, or a partnership and they're not paying themselves commercial wages, then that has to be allowed for. So what the banks do really simply is they gross up that profit, they deduct those other three components and they must have a surplus with a bit of a buffer. And when they actually calculate the debt servicing, they allow for interest rates at 2 or 3% higher than what they are now to accommodate rising rates so they're not putting someone in trouble, you know, if rates went up. And, and of course, that's been important the last 12 or 18 months. So it's exactly the same if, if there's no profit there. Now, obviously, when you're looking at someone's historical, you might have weather factors in there and drought factors and everything else. And so, um, as Greg again said, not just a one-year cash flow budget, but what the banks call a year-in, year-out, long-term averages on everything, and then do the calculations on that. Because often when a bank's looking at a file, they might have recently taken on extra land and extra debt, and obviously they uh, allow the farmer to demonstrate the extra land's going to bring a return and create efficiencies and everything else. So it's exactly the same analysis if a... If a farmer isn't profitable, and I, I don't even like using the word farmer, um, if a business isn't profitable, um, then it can't service the debt and cover everything it needs to, and therefore it, it's going to be in trouble. And uh, and that's exactly what the banks assess when they when they assess lending. Thanks, Jeff. Greg, just coming back to you, you mentioned cost of production relative to cost per hectare. Can can costs and profit per hectare actually be a misleading? number to focus in on uh well yeah well yes if you're just if you're just concentrating on the cost themselves you just, if you're just basically you're trying to get yourself out of a 
out of a difficult financial position by cutting back on the expenses in the business, then, as I said before, you know, the um, the likely scenario is you'll start impacting the production. I mean, you might live for a little while um, on, on your phosphorus bank and, and the fertiliser bank that you've built up maybe, but but eventually it will it will catch up with a lot of people. And 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 because of this high relationship or strong relationship between profit um, productivity, um, revenue and profit, um, you know you, you can't afford to drop profitability uh, productivity. Sorry. Um, and in fact, the, to me, the the key message at the moment with the with the with where we're at financially um, and the current scenario is um, is we should be out there exploring all opportunities to increase productivity, not decrease productivity. Um, and and that should have been the focus over the last few years as well, because we had a market situation where the markets were crying out for all of our commodities. That's why they were paying the prices that they were paying. The, the prices were nuts because people wanted what we produced. So that, so the trigger should have been then we'll go out and produce as much as you possibly can. And to be very honest with you, it's the, the same thing applies now. It's it's you know production is is going to be king. Um, and for the for the for the large majority of farm businesses, there's um, there's there's increases in production available to them. And it's not until you reach um, according to the law of diminishing returns, it's not until you reach a certain level of production and inputs that you start to actually, your profit um, figure actually starts to go down. So, you know, it's understanding what your business is. It's understanding the role of, of the, the key inputs, how they drive extra production, um, you know, in a relatively risk-free way and knowing where it is on any sort of price scenario, knowing where that optimum, that sweet spot is for uh, for productivity and, and, and the yield of the various commodities. But you know, commodity prices are, or commodities. Um, there's one thing that's 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 kind of um, immutable about commodities, and that is that they they um, prices will always tend to return to the long term average. Um, so we'll have periods where they go well above the long term average. We'll have periods where they go below the long term average, but they tend to always return to the long term average, and that's kind of where we come to. I think you've done a bit of an assessment on current pricing, Greg. Um, just in preparation, I think there are a lot of people out there that are concerned about some of the commodity prices that we're seeing now, and even some panic out there around um, this, the commodity pricing that we're seeing now compared to last season. What is our reality, Greg? Just as a broad overview. Yeah, so you're right, Jeremy. And can I preface this by saying that the sorts of prices that have been received for cattle and for lands in the last two years have been outrageous. Um, and and if you look at the long term averages, and I go back over twenty five years, and I look at the at the, the 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 price trends or the price deciles in inflation adjusted prices. So I bring the historical prices to today's dollars because that's the only way to properly compare prices because of the time value of money, the depreciation of value of, of dollar of the dollar value over time. You can't compare directly the actual price, the nominal price for a commodity twenty years ago and the price today. Um, you've got to you've got to inflation adjust those prices, but when we do that and we have a look at it, so steers and medium steers and and medium cows and and now at about the fiftieth percentile long term average prices. So they're not great, but they're not bad either. They're they're just they're just in the average. Um, trade lambs are at sixty percent of the long term average um, uh, or sixty percent old price. Sorry, heavy lambs are at sixty five percent. The sixty five percent old price. Eighteen micron wools at sixty eight percent. Um, percentile 19 micron 66 percent 20 micron 65 the broad walls um 24 is at 10 percent and 28 is at five percent so they're definitely extremely low and have been for some time um and you've got to think about this i mean there's a lot of that uh that broad micron walls being stockpiled around the world at this point in time so i don't i can't see the prices for um these broad micron walls changing uh, much um in the near future Wheat's still greater than eighty percent of the long term, um, uh, the long term or decile scenario, and barley's at fifty percent, canola's at fifty percent. So we've got a lot of commodities now that are just sitting in that fifty to sixty percent um, uh, price percentile brackets. So this, they're not they're not as good as what they were, but they're not by no means disastrous. Jeff, what's your take on that? Yeah, absolutely, and. Um... Uh, you're absolutely right. We we get a bit spoiled. You know, people were complaining about interest rates being so high, and um, of course, you know, that's only because we had two or three years of them so low. Um, and you're right with commodity prices. Um, and and up in our northern Mallee and South Australia area, um, you know, we didn't have a good 21 with rainfall, so we didn't capitalise on that. But 20 and 22, you know, have been really good years. So to review the business and take the 
emotion out of it and look at the numbers, everything Greg said there makes sense. But the one thing Greg said that I just want to touch on, and again, I just talk about our area in the Northern Mallee where um, I think GRDC records would say that our average yield on cereals is about 1.4 tonne per hectare, so we're reasonably marginal. In 2020, it, it was actually, I love it, and I quote it all the time, it was what I call a perfect year because it was an average year. We actually had average rainfall falling when it should have, <laughs> not when it shouldn't have. We had um, reasonably average commodity prices. We had average inputs. You know, you could probably argue the rates were a bit low, interest rates for, for long-term average, but it was a t- it was an average year. And what I was able to see is is a, is a lot of operations that yielded 2 to 2.5 uh, tonne per hectare in wheat and barley, and there were others that struggled to get to 1.4. And the difference was, um, you know, many prior years investment in machinery and technology, um, soils, um, you know, all the investments over time, timeliness, um, you know, everything else. And those that capitalised on that average year ended up at, you know, nearly double what you would call the area average historically. So that's a testament to me that, um, you know, if, if you're in business, you've got to, you know, take into account efficiencies and affordability. Um, you know, you need to be knowing your numbers and trying to do it the best you possibly can. So with all of that in mind and heading forward into this, then, you know, there may be, there's a lot of people out there that are well set up. You know, they have, you know, there's a lot of delving and clay spreading going in on some sandy soils around our area. Um, and, you know, that'll have a long-term benefit over time once they get the nutrient up, you know, and, and therefore it's a long-term plan and they've got machinery and the labour to do it. So as long as it's all affordable on long-term averages, um, it's, it's a way to run a business in the future. Thanks, Jeff. Greg, you mentioned 30% profit um, as the benchmark with average yields and average prices through that economic model. I've also heard you say, and I think it's a really interesting point, that our businesses need to be able to break even or better in a decile two-year. Yeah. Would you mind speaking to that? Because I think what we've got to do is make sure that our business models are resilient and that we can also minimise losses in below average years um, and be set up to be able to perform well in above average years. Would you mind just speaking to that point? I think it's a really key point for our listeners. Yeah, well, I, I guess that goes to the point that it's, it's unrealistic to expect that that all farming businesses in the, in the country are going to be, be profitable every year because of the, the, the dramatic seasonal variation that a lot of people experience. Um, and then we have price variation on top of that as well. So, so you know, the bottom line for a lot of people who farm in more variable climatic regions is that, is that you know, um, ideally they need to be profitable eight years out of 10. So, you know, so two, two, two years out of 10, they're either going to break even or, or they're going to make losses. And, and, that, and those those break-even or loss years are compensated for by the, the profits that they're making in the, the out, of, out of 10 years. And so, and so really, if you're looking to, to stress test your, your um, enterprise models, you know, apply um, decile to prices, apply decile to production um, out, outcomes to your enterprise models and see how they stack up. Um, and really, they should be able to, they should, ideally, they should be able to break even. And if they're breaking even, then you are a low-cost producer. You're a low-cost of production producer. And you know that will stand you in very good stead for the majority of years. Um, and 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 the responsibility, really, as a, as a manager of a farming business, in my from my perspective, is that is that you you optimise um, or take the opportunities that are provided to you when you have good years and uh, and and good prices, um, or good years and average prices, or um, average years and good prices. So that you anything that's above the average, you're you're optimising and, and taking advantage of those. And when you reach a situation or you have years where um, climatic circumstances or prices dictate that you're not going to make a profit, then you manage the losses and you don't allow those losses to get too too large because the nature of farming businesses are that they are low-profit businesses. Um, compared to, to non-farming businesses, they have low profitability. Like a, a well-managed um, farm, you know, will, will generally deliver something between 4 and 6% return on assets managed over a long period of time. So if you allow um, loss-making years to become extreme, it takes a long time to recover those losses um, and then get back into the situation where you're actually you know, generating reasonable profits um, off the back of the assets again. And, and, um, and, and often what happens or what we see is in those, particularly those areas of reasonable um, climatic variability is that people go through a, a couple of bad years, seasons, and they, and they make significant losses and, they, and it takes them four or five years to actually start to recover from those losses and they, and they just starting to recover and they go into the next 
couple of bad seasons. So, so they just, you know, basically in the end, it, it's a it's a recipe for um, not a lot of wealth creation um, and 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 a lot more financial risk in the business than perhaps what it might be. And so, Greg, if I do my economic model and at average yields and average prices, I can't make it achieve a thirty percent profit. Um, and when I put the decile to prices and yields and and outputs into my model that I break even in a decile four but not a decile two year, what do I do? It's a great question, Jeremy, and this is where I think um, this is where the art of farming and the farm business management actually really kicks in. You make your money in farming in the decisions you make in the office, not what you do in the paddock. Um, and if you don't do the planning, if you don't spend the time on your model, if you don't look at all the alternatives you have available to you to actually change what it is you do and, and potentially change the outcome, you just go out and do what you've always done and expect a different result to what you've always achieved, then you are likely to end up um, not getting anywhere. So to, to my mind, if, if, the, if you do that analysis and you find that, that you know, you're not, it's not cutting the mustard, your model's not cutting the mustard, I would lock myself in the office and I would work on that model until I actually came up with something that could work and, and could deliver or as close as I could to the outcome that I wanted to achieve. And so there might be some very serious and strategic decisions that come out of that, out of that analysis, but if you never go there, you'll never, you'll never know. And unfortunately, too many farm business owners never go there. I think it's a great point, Greg. Jeff, what would your comment be on that? If, if, if the numbers around my business model don't stack up, you know, what are my options? Yeah, look, um, exactly what uh, exactly what Greg said about uh, judging the model, and I'll just, um, uh, just a bit of an overarching view from banks just for awareness. Um, the stats are that 87% of business lending in Australia is not ag. It's commercial and retail and, yeah, mining everywhere else, and only 13% is ag. And when you throw in consumer lending, like home loans, we're down to less than 2% of money's lent in ag and and without quoting banks they have two problems lending with ag when they lend to business the numbers are all done it's all commercial it's no emotion um there's a rent on a property or whatever it might be historical trading very little influence so when they lend to ag the two problems are number one the variability of weather and therefore it's you know there's an expectation that the people running the business actually have a higher expertise to be able to manage that because you can manage a commercial property and collect rent without too much skill. Um, but the second part is exactly that, where um, a, a majority of um, farmers, if I call them that out there, are running on emotion. They're running on fuel. They're running on doing what feels right. And, you know, there's an old adage, especially with males, that when the going gets tough, they, they work harder and they work longer and they go through the night and, you know, their way is to, to go out and, and do it, whereas Greg nailed it, where the actual strategic way to manage through, um, if, if you're not cutting the mustard with your numbers at the moment, then sitting around the table, sitting in the office, making strategic decisions and planning your business is actually, so it's nearly like the opposite to what your intuition tells you to do. And it, it actually doesn't happen with a lot of people because they don't have a structure of, they don't necessarily have the skill set in their family to do that. They don't seek advice because that's often seen as a sign of weakness that they can't do it themselves. Um, it is a changing world that needs all that. So it often the decision-making, the core decisions around how they do that, um, they don't bring in the advisors, they don't have a process to, to run through it. And that's where they fall foul of the banks eventually or it might be other compliance measures that they uh, can't keep up with because it's not what they do and what they know. And instead of seeking out investing out, now, of course, farm owners, academy members excluded in all this such uh, because they do all this, but that's the, the transition. You know, I, 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 again, I remember way back in my bank days in the Riverland where, you know, mum and dad on 30 acres vineyard and a house, um, you know, a bit of off-farm income. And I did this loan and my manager said, we're not here to fund people's lifestyles. This needs to be a business and it needs to stand up. And there's nothing truer than that. They're, they're a business. So the inability, whether by emotion, pride or anything else, to actually go and do what Greg just said and sit down and work a plan on your business to how it's going to be affordable um, and also, you know, be productive over a long period of time for next generations is, is critical, but so many people don't do it. Yeah, great comment, Jeff. 
I um, was speaking to one of the heads of research at Rabobank the other day, and they were giving us some trends on canola plantings and 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 just the the production report that they're about to publish. Um, what I've sort of seen some croppers do, for example, is is reduce their area to canola being one of the more costly crops to produce, and even consider fallow as a way of reducing costs. I guess my question is, how much control do we actually have over our cost base? And what are some of the things that we can do to manage our cost base if our costs of production, if if that that you know in-office assessment doesn't stack up? Um, the, the Greg touched on it earlier, um, things like canola, and one of the things I'm seeing is everyone seems to be doubling up on lentil plantings this year because, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not a farmer, but um, yeah, everyone had uh, a very good year with their lentils last year in our area and our state, and, um, and, you know, the late rains certainly helped that, which isn't necessarily an every-year event. And so being, you know, a conservative banker, I have this risk that if people were doubling up on something that the commodity price is good at the moment and it went well last year, that's a field thing and a, a timing thing. And it might be might pay off, don't get me wrong, but it's not necessarily a long-term plan. And what Greg touched in is uh, on his rotations. You know, we uh, I deal with a lot of people that will do a spray fellow. Um, they'll, uh, they'll, they'll put in crop types that they know they on a gross margin, they potentially won't break even, but they're looking on a a three year plus plan for that paddock, and um, and it's what they get off the following year with a with a wheat or a, uh, another cereal and, and those rotations. So while they're you know taking it on a paddock somewhere, they're actually capitalising on what they did last year on another paddock. So yeah, it's all that planning, and 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 look, don't get me wrong, a lot of cereal farmers do that really well. It's probably the bringing in of those strategic cropping decisions back to the numbers. Still, it's still got to go back into what's affordable, what's not, what, what's the machinery costs of doing all that. So, yeah, we, we keep heading back to non-emotional business decisions around the numbers um, are, a, are a platform for any business. Greg, what's your comment on just how much control we actually have over our cost base and, and some tactical things that we might look at when we are reviewing our business model? Yeah, I mean, you know, all we can do is 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 react to the circumstances that are put in front of us. So, and make the best decisions we can. And so, um, you know, if you're in a situation where you're experiencing or you're about to experience a, a lower than average rainfall year, or you know, a, a rainfall year that's going to be quite difficult to grow, uh, successfully grow crops in, and, and so forth, then then you, you still have the ability to make strategic and tactical decisions about a lot of your costs. Now, where it becomes more difficult, I think. Is in like in the cropping space where you have a frosting events. So you might have, you know, fantastic um, crops growing and and uh, they're all, all looking great and the yield potential looks fantastic. And, and you have a, a catastrophic event like a you know a massive frost event. Um, and and so you've you've spent the money. Your costs are already there. You know they're invested in the yield and, and all of a sudden it doesn't eventuate. So so it, but it, you know if you're in a frost, it's part of the farming scenario. And if you're in a frost prone area, um, you know then it's understanding what those risks are and maybe. You know, looking at ways of being able to to manage those going forward, using grazing um, on some of those those more frost prone areas, for example. Um, you know, th there's lots of ways that we can think about it. But but we do in the end, we do every every cost that we that we every dollar that we spend on the business, we actually we make the decision to spend it. Um, you know, we do, we have the ultimate control over our checkbook, um, and and we decide what money we're going to spend. And so when we think about it, you know, we do we we have 100% control of it over our costs. We don't have 100% control over our yields um, and our seasons, but we have 100% control over, over our costs. And we have a good um, ability um, to be able to understand how inputs relate to production. And so that's that, and that's the key really is it's it's understanding how you know varying um, a particular cost in the business, how varying a particular input is likely to affect production. And then what that effect is going to be on revenue and, and profit. So um, it, it becomes tricky, but you know, running a farming business um, is is not there are probably not too many professional farming businesses in the country these days that you wouldn't consider to be substantial businesses. Most of them have you know five to ten million dollars plus assets under management. And if you were if you were any other business other than a farming business and you had that amount of assets under management, 
you would have some very, very good financial control, some extremely good people in there that know about finances and budgeting and, and, and looking at the risks and how the business can react to the, you know, whatever going, is going on in its markets and so forth. Um, and so, you know, I find it kind of interesting that we've got, a, um, in, in this particular farming industry across the country, we've got large amounts of assets being controlled by people with very little, a lot, oftentimes, I'm not being rude about this, but oftentimes very little knowledge about financing, budgeting, um, and and the management of costs and, and so forth. So, so you know, I think it's an area that we, as an industry, we need to continue to concentrate on. We need to upskill people and everybody. If you don't feel uh, personally like you've got the skills in that area, then I think it it um, it behoves you to get out there and get those skills um, because you'll find that it changes the dynamic of the way you farm. And for those interested, um, on Wednesday the seventh of June at midday. Um, we are hosting an FOA webinar. Um, we've asked Greg to speak to this point on what are the key ratios, what are the key tools, what are the key resources um, we need to have around us so that we are strong as a business on financial acumen and um, we're getting a glimpse of the skill set that we need to be strong in financial literacy. So I'll share a link to that um, webinar in the intro to this podcast. But if um, financial strength is something that you need to work on highly recommend that you join us at midday on wednesday the 7th for that webinar so jeff greg mentioned that we're in control of our checkbook and that you know we are in control of what we allocate cash to we're arriving to 30 june again and i think this one might be a little bit different in that instant asset write-off finishes 30 june um do you have um, a comment on um, decision-making over the next few weeks, given that structural change? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it's been the major topic of conversation recently about um, what does it all mean. Um, probably uh, the, just, just hitting on the depreciation, I actually did a newsletter uh, recently uh, the key aspect that I tend to focus on in all this, because we have people that are trying to buy things before 30th of June because they want to get a claim against last year at 100%. And, um, and then we have others that are actually holding off because they have depreciated all their equipment to zero and had the advantage of all that and they actually want to build up their, their pool again to actually start getting these 15 and 20% claims in future years because they're starting from zero base. And, um, and so there's a few tactics and, uh, you know, machinery dealers are telling me, you know, in fact, I, I've got a header sale going on now that was meant to wait to September because the trade, you know, is desperately being sought after to get the claim and things like this. And as we know um, and talked about at length in the past, Hutch, you know, there's no such thing as tax avoidance or even arguably minimisation. I don't like that word. It's deferral. You know, all tax is deferrable. So what I've been doing is getting my head around what do the next couple of years look like when someone's claimed their entire pool and everything they've bought up until June and uh, and then they head into next year without having that advantage. And my understanding is under 20,000 assets are still claimable. So I, I did a few numbers on this and put a apples with apples, you know, from a year or so ago with 100% claim and, and future year. And, and I like to use the example of if someone bought a $500,000 tractor in July or onwards, then next year they'll claim 15% of that in the first year and, and don't take this tax advice, of course, but roughly 15% of that and then maybe 20% a year on the depreciating balance after. But the sale of their trade, they've already claimed 100%, so that becomes total profit. So if they're trading 200 grand on that 500 grand asset, they only get 15% of the 500, but they have to actually declare the whole 200 as it's not technically a capital gain, but it's income and it's profit. And if they have finance on that or, or anything else, then obviously cash becomes the key here um, as the management of cash because, you know, someone might hit a year where they, they hit that 30% profit mark and let's just say for argument's sake it's $300,000 next year, uh, next financial year, and suddenly they've artificially lifted that to 500 or 600 because they've sold some assets that they claimed 100% of. Um, and then not only do they then have to pay the tax on that, or they might want to do FMDs or super or other strategies there, that all take cash. Um, then they have to pay the tax and then they have to pay the pay as you go. 
that they haven't been paying because they've got their profit down. So um, the catch-up of that, the message I'm getting out to people is preserve your cash at all costs, you know. Um, use, use finance for the new machinery and collect the trade in cash and park it away off your term debt ready to take out and use later because, you know, we, we get to this scenario in the next couple of years where cash is going to be really important and banks are going to be asking questions. You know, if you've got an issue around uh, your tax now, what did you do with the extra money you had in the last two years um, back then. And, of course, if it's disappeared into other areas and not preserved, then there's a day of reckoning. So I hope that makes a bit of sense there, Hutch, on that. Yeah, it does. Greg, anything to add? No, I think Jeff summed it up really well. Um, you know, it, it, you, you just need to make good business decisions and, and not, let, not let the tax position drive your decisions because... Good businesses pay tax. That's what it's about. And you should be, I mean, to be honest with you, you know, you shouldn't pay more tax than you need to, but but be happy paying tax because it means you're making profit. And and um, there's nothing wrong. I've never yet seen a business go broke making a profit. So, you know, I think it's I think it's something that um, you know, we shouldn't let those those decisions around minimizing tax um, drive uh, the decisions we make. If it doesn't make sense from an economic perspective, if it doesn't make sense from a farming business and production perspective, then then don't go there. Thanks, Greg. So just one more theme to explore with you both while I have you. Land prices across the board have largely doubled. Um, How do farmers make informed decisions about whether they can justify an expansion step on the back of the few years they've had? And, you know, this year plays out reasonably. What sort of due diligence do people need to be doing when they are looking at buying the block next door? Jeff, I might throw to you first. Uh, look, I, I just want to give you a real-life scenario without getting caught in the numbers. Um, uh, a reasonable area around the York Peninsula um, in South Australia here, um, you know, land price there anywhere from twelve dollars to $14,000 an acre, um, which, you know, obviously is significantly higher than a few years ago. Um, and, of course, with interest rates having gone up, and, and one might argue that the low rates over a few years have assisted in the in the drive of that, I asked, I, I did some basic maths on even just interest only if uh, if they bought some land, these people, and we're up to $1,000 an acre as interest costs alone on, um, on buying that land if they went out and paid top dollar for it. That's before a bank has to calculate that they pay the principal off as well. Um, and when I asked them what a true lease value would be on that land, their answer was three hundred and eighty dollars an acre in the you know the same dirt. So when you and this is a um, driver that comes from you know family farms that are trying to build their asset base, the acquisition of extra land is a huge imposition at today's prices at today's rates, um, huge imposition on their repayment ability and and their profits uh, to be able to service it. A um, when you look at it from solely a repayment point of view, 380, I would argue, is the average because that's what, you know, that's what is a good return on investment based on what you can crop from it. And, you know, an operator would struggle to pay a lot more than that and uh, yeah, without taking on risk. So we've got this dynamic at the moment with land bees that, you know, the cost to actually own it and pay debt and borrow for it is far, far higher than what, I suppose, the real operating cost is, which I put that back to uh, average lease prices. So there's there's two decisions there. I call them the profit loss decision, which is if that was presented and there was an option to lease rather than buy, you would lease every day because you, you've got every chance of making money out of it in a normal year. If you look at it from a balance sheet point of view, um, then you affect the profit loss because you, you've got to service debt on that. But some farmers would argue their long-term plan over 20 years to increase holdings to provide for their children and so on and so on. At some point, you got to bite the bullet and buy it. So I, I probably, I, it's a bit of a crystal ball here, and um, uh, but I turn around and say one of the main drivers behind increased land prices over the last three to five years, um, aside from the lack of, you know, the availability of it, has been low interest rates. You know, when people are paying 2% or less, then um, suddenly their cost, even in um, York Peninsula, you know, that land would have been a lot cheaper if it was a lot lower rate. Um, now that we're heading up sixes and sevens, 
something's got to give. You know, there is a point in time, you know, one farmer goes and buys a few hundred acres next door and he's out of the market for five years, you know, um, because of his debt servicing ability. So uh, something's got to give. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting that land prices are going to come down immediately or anything else like that, but I, my crystal ball tells me I don't know that they're going any higher for a while. Um, a bit like what happens in residential markets. They tend to have spikes and then flatten for a while. So that's probably just a, uh, to put something out there for thought for people. Thanks, Jeff. Greg, what would your comment be about um, making that next expansion step? Well, I think the most important thing is that you've optimised the current business that you've got. Um, you know, if you've got a good business model and you're making, you know, good good profits, uh, so, if you, you know, 4 to 6% return on assets managed on the land you currently own, um, you've got, you know, you've got an interest cover of uh, uh, of at least um, three times, probably four times, would be the ideal scenario. Um, you, you know, you, you, the business in, is in the position to start at that point of time. The, pro- the problem you've got is that, um, you know, you've got the, you, as Jeff already mentioned, you've got the serviceability issue. So you've got to have the profitability in your model to be able to service the extra debt that you take on. That's that's the first issue. The second thing to think about is that from a from a, from a straight wealth creation perspective and um, once again, I'm not a wealth, wealth advisor, so please don't take this as personal advice. But from a straight wealth creation perspective, the, the wealth in farming comes from two areas. It comes from the capital appreciation of the land and it comes from the operating returns that you make operating that land. And so, um, and when you look, go back and look at the historical uh, um, price appreciation of, of, of rural land, as Jeff said, it's not, it's not linear. It tends to be uh, like a staircase. So we have we have short periods of quite rapid increases in prices, and then fairly long periods of fairly stable prices. Um, you know, something like eight to ten years, uh, where the prices are fairly stable. So if you think about it this way, in the in the periods of of the of those price appreciation uh, uh, periods when there's there's basically nothing going on, your total return from your investment is is the operating return you're making. Um, and so if you if you're if you've got a model that's gen- just generating extremely low returns, and the average the 30-year average Australian return on assets manager is 1.4%, which is which is a very low return on investment uh, on capital. But if you've got a model that's delivering low returns, um, the only the only wealth you're generating from that farm asset that you purchased over the period when when capital appreciation is low is the operating return, um, and, and which makes it a very poor investment to be honest with you. When you could take that same amount of money, borrow borrow it, invest in residential property, commercial property, share market, which all which all historically have gone ahead at much higher rates, much higher levels than that. Um, and when they do have downturns, um, the downturns are fairly short-lived, uh, particularly in the share market. Yes, there are periods when the share market goes backwards, but it's very short-lived. So think about it from the point of view of the overall wealth creation, because in the end, you know, um, we're in business, I think, to uh, provide for ourselves and our families and, 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 to, and to accumulate wealth over, over time. And, you know, wealth doesn't only come from farming land. It can come from all sorts of um, assets that, that provide income and, and capital appreciation. So, you know, there might be better opportunities for investment um, of your capital elsewhere um, if you've got it to spend um, or, or borrowed funds elsewhere outside of farming. But, but firstly, get your, get your own house in order. Um, the, the better your farming model is, the better you'll go expanding that model onto a, an expanded area. Um, and particularly in um, the cropping caper, if you've got extra capacity in your machinery and you've got extra capacity in your labour force and you've got um, good profitability and, and good debt cover, then you are probably a pretty good candidate for expansion, um, irrespective of what land prices are, because the two biggest overhead costs or the, 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 probably the two biggest costs in, um, in, uh, cropping, in a cropping farm uh, scenario are uh, labour and, and um, plant ownership costs. And if they are not significantly impacted, not, not significantly increased by expanded um, area, then potentially that expanded area actually um, will run at a very low cost of production and add very positively to the business. But it all starts with getting your own house in order and having a model that works on the area you've currently got now. Thanks, Greg. All right, I have one more question of each of you. I'm mindful of time. Jeff, you're dealing with banks every day and your team are often sort of working with clients or on clients' behalf with Banks, has sentiment changed? Has there anything changed in this last 12 months that as business owners we need to be aware of? Um, not not really. Um, the banks, as you know, they have to sometimes deal with farmers through good and bad times. And, um, and you know, I, I give them a lot of credit. They've got a duty of care. 
um, to their clients and they're, they're, they're the partners. You know, I love that word partners because they're also taking the risk on a farmer and probably the driver and what's coming through. And, and again, in our area in irrigation with wine grapes, there's a lot of pressure now on the bankers to, you know, work out if clients can afford to pay um, the debt back over long-term averages um, through no fault of the irrigators, by the way. Um, yeah, at the end of the day, their commodity price is all-time lows. But again, so, so what's happening is they're driving through the decision-making process and asking a lot of questions and what, what we're seeing is that those that don't know the numbers, those that don't have a plan, those that don't have a long-term plan, um, succession or anything else in order, they're falling short. And um, and it's actually the irony of all this is they're not necessarily falling short on finance parameters. They're falling short on business management. Um, that's the key. That's a core part, as, as, as banks would know, um, the ability for the people they're lending to to make the right decisions, smart decisions, to protect their risk for them. That's what they're trying to judge. And the provision of information and the understanding of what they're doing in their numbers is crucial. So, you know, that's the, I suppose, the message I put out there to people around banks is if you're running a good business, you know your business, um, you've got plans, you've got strategies, um, that you're, they'll be there for you all day, every day, because you've got a plan. It's the ones that don't and are just uh, living on hope for anything else that must um, find it pretty difficult. Thanks, Jeff. And, Greg, one last question for you, and we'll touch more on this um, in our webinar on the 7th of June, but what are two or three key things that you see the top 20% of farmers doing differently? Well, it's a great question, Hutch, and, and there's no doubt that the um, I think the keys are that the all of the owners are, are, or key people in, in, in the business uh, have a clear understanding of where the business is going and they're all on the same page. So they're very, they have a very, they're very focused on, on where the business is going and, and what they need to achieve to actually you know, create and, and manage a successful farming business. The second thing is they have extremely good understanding of their numbers. They, they know what's going on. Um, they know what the what the, the the targets, production targets, and the revenue targets are for the year, and they track those monthly so that they know what the cash position of the business is. They're making good strategic decisions in the now, not waiting, not not finding out that the things aren't working out as they as they wanted. You know, six months later on down the track, when it's too late to make decisions, so they're actively managing their cash. As as Jeff said, it's a it's a really important part of it. And I think the third thing is that. Is that they is that they are very uh, open to um, knowledge and learning and 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 always looking for a better way to do things. So I think they're they're the three keys. It's it's you know it's having a clear vision for the future that everybody is aligned to, having a great understanding of of the finances of the business and managing the cash, and and really um and really being open to to learning and 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 doing things uh, different and and bringing in technology and new ways of doing things as appropriate. Thanks, Greg. Jeff, we, um, as always, value your wisdom, your insight and your um, openness and willingness to share in and around that. Um, we really value our partnership and our relationship with RLS Lending. We recommend you and your team highly. As always, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Hutch, and thanks, Greg. Great chat. And, Greg, as always, it's great to get you on to Profitable Farmer and and to share some of the insights that you have around, again, what the top 20% of farmers are doing and, and some of those key metrics that as business owners we need to be hitting. Really appreciate your time as well. Thanks again for um, for being with us. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for the invitation and, and good to catch up with you again, Jeff. It's, uh, it's always, always always interesting to have these chats and um, and sort of, you know, and, and, and talk about what's going on in the industry for sure. Thanks, gentlemen. Speak soon. As always, a really compelling conversation when you get Greg Johnson and Jeff McDonald together. I hope you found that valuable. Um, I don't have a crystal ball any more than any of you do, but we are seeing inflation and it will continue. Um, we are seeing increasing interest rates and that's likely to stay. And we are seeing softening commodity prices relative to other years, more recent years. And so it's so important now that our business models are strong and resilient and can stack up from a profitability standpoint with average yields and 
average prices. And so encourage you to go and work on your economic model and make sure that you are doing that work with key people around you um, to build out a resilient business model that can deliver a strong profit in an average season and at least break even in a decile two year. I just think they're really good metrics to go and do your due diligence around. Um, you know, I love the concept that a business is only trending in the right direction if its income is growing at a greater rate than its cost base is growing. And to Greg's point, productivity and efficiency gains are just so important. And so really important that in all of this, that we're not sacrificing production and productivity as we go about trying to manage our cost base and our cost of production. Um, wish you all well. Great conversation. Um, and I will share a link to the webinar on Wednesday, the 6th of, 7th of June, sorry, at midday, where Greg and I are going to talk about this in a fair bit more detail. Thank you, guys. Take care and bye for now. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Profitable Farmer podcast by Farm Owners Academy. If you're new to this show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a long-time listener, let your friends know about us or come continue the conversation in the Profitable Farmer Facebook group. All the best as you grow your business and create your freedom farm. Until next time, keep being incredible.